when we find novel solutions or universal solutions to the challenges that individuals face or that we collectively face in humanity, especially looking at the challenge of climate change and social injustice. I mean, there are, architecture can solve a lot of things if we go at it the right way. It's also the root cause of a lot of our problems, you know. So to address climate change in a lot of ways is an effort at reversing a lot of the damage that the built environment has already done over the past 200 years. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by architect James Hartford. Thanks so much for joining us, James. Let's dive right in. Tell us about your professional journey. Where did you go to school? What did you study? And what profession did you plan to pursue? Well, I started off as an undergraduate at SUNY Albany, State University of New York, with a dual major in English and Fine Arts. It took a while for me to settle on those two because I was thinking pre-med and did a lot of biology and chemistry classes then. But once I discovered drawing and art, I was hooked. So I stopped taking chemistry classes. (laughs) And after SUNY Albany, what did you do? After SUNY Albany, I got my master's degree at SUNY Buffalo. Mm -hmm. So I'm a product of New York State. And then you launched your architecture career. Yes. From there, I started working in New York City. And there's a a three-year internship before you can take the architecture exams, which is a pretty arduous undertaking to get through all of them. At the time, I think there were nine exams. They've changed. I think there are now only seven. So, But it's a long career path. Did you ever consider a different career? When I was little, I wanted to be a baseball player and a priest. (laughs) (laughs) So not in your teen years then? No. (laughs) Did your parents influence your career choice? Not much. No, they didn't. It was really something that I found through trial and error. Looking back, I did a lot of drawing as a kid, and I was making my own toys. I'd carve my own toys out of wood. I would draw in blue ink, you know, details for building my own kayak, which I still haven't done yet, but I will. (laughs) So it's something that I've considered for a long time without knowing that I was actually kind of circling around it. I actually had an eighth grade school teacher give us kind of a skills test. And she said, James, you really should be a marine architect by based on my interests back then. But I didn't really listen for a while. And what's the difference between a marine architect and a regular architect, which you are, right? Yes, yes. I'm a regular architect. So a a marine architect is someone who designs boats or vessels of some kind or stationary objects that are in the ocean. So docks, piers, drilling rigs, but also ships and buoys and things like that. Did you ever consider that path? I did a little bit, but not too wholeheartedly. And I think she was coming from that in part because I was interested in, you know, building my own kayak, for example, and things like that. But also I have always been very deeply interested in ecology and marine ecology in particular. And so, you know, there is a funny kind of bridge between my interest in biology and design is that, um, you know, the marine environment is a really important one. And in general, our relationship to the environment is really important. So I think that's how 
I've gone from my interest in biology and science early on into design and then into sustainable architecture. Did you have any role models in this field? No, I didn't. I think that's probably why it took me so long to discover it. You know, besides that one eighth grade uh, teacher, Mrs. Vaughn, who was fantastic, there was no one who was ever really asking me what interests you. You know, it was always get good grades, study hard. But to what end? Nobody was helping me shape that vision. So, And it's so important to have mentorship yeah. where you're kind of guided along to where you fit. Right. Yeah, it's true. When people learn that I'm an architect or when I was studying architecture, people usually assume that I'm good in math and I'm, you know, good in physics and things like that. And I'm okay in those things. But it was when I discovered that I wanted to do architecture that I actually excelled in calculus because it finally I had a reason to do it. It was scary and intimidating until finally it related to my life. And then I was taught to see the math and the calculus around us in the design of a bridge, for example, or in the natural forms of shells, you know, like the Nautilus. So once it became more concrete to me and no longer abstract, it was kind of a clarifying moment. Is there anything that surprised you about the field? I thought it'd be a little bit more exciting in the earlier years, but it ends up being very dry in your first couple of years working in most firms. You know, I was working in a firm that specialized in hospitals and it was incredibly dry. A lot of repetition and just kind of creating details and drawing sets without much artistic expression. But then I realized that the key to getting past that is to get out of a large firm and getting away from something that's so highly specialized and working in a small design firm where the projects vary greatly and your tasks vary a lot so that your interests are always mixed and peaked and so that you're not getting stuck in a routine. So how, how long were you with the larger firm before you switched into a smaller firm? About a year and a half. Then I went from this incredibly boring firm to a fascinating small firm that was working on boutique shops in New York City and the restoration of the School of Architecture at Pratt that burned in a fire. And so I was back in the same environment that I left only a few years before, you know, back in a school situation and solving design problems for design studios and other other architecture students. So it was a cool transition and just a lot more fun to be in a creative studio environment. What did you like best about that environment? Working with my peers, you know, I had so many fun, young, interesting people who were coming from around the world. And it was uh, just everybody had fresh ideas and we were very encouraging to each other. There was no kind of negative competition, but it was all sort of, you know, this uh, encouragement that, you know, a good peer group provides you. Is there a lot of negative competition? Is that something that occurs in this field? Sometimes, yeah. Depending on the architecture school, some schools are highly competitive where, you know, it used to be that you had to put cardboard down over your work at night so people would come and spill ink on your drawings. Now, of course, it might be now that they might delete your files on the computer, but, you know, quite a lot of programs still have a focus on 
hand drawing anyway. So there's some really nasty stories of that sort of thing happening. Thankfully, was not the case in my school. And then in the profession, there's can be a, a bit of professional jealousy between firms. But I think what's really great about the path that we've taken with Passive House and um, energy efficiency is that we recognize that there's a bigger problem that we have to solve collaboratively. And so there's a lot of help in uh, supporting each other and sharing ideas because the changing the paradigm of how buildings are built and designed is way more important than our individual kind of mark on them. Any misconceptions that you'd like to dispel within the field of architecture? So I think a common misperception is that architecture is a luxury, that solving design problems is something for the wealthy or for you know celebrities, but it's the things that we can solve in everybody's lives, their everyday lives, are pretty amazing. You know, just to simply kind of think through how people use a space, whether it's where they live or where they work, we can do a lot to really make their lives much more comfortable. To a lot of people, architecture is an intangible, that it's not something that they understand. They can understand the work that an engineer does, so a building doesn't fall down on them. They can understand the work that a contractor does because they drive the nails or they apply the paint. But the architecture is kind of the art of the building, and that gets to be much more difficult for people to understand. But there are so many different complex aspects of a building from just the the way the light moves into a room or how the space feels, both for sound or temperature, all of these things that are kind of intangible, these are the things that architects do. And so to make the spaces enjoyable or comfortable and to coordinate between the, the engineer and the contractor and the owner is the kind of hard work that we do. And it's, it's a good challenge. It's a fun challenge. Are there key moments in your career that lifted your skill level or made a significant difference in your ability? I think whenever we have a good challenge ahead of us, we find new strengths in our reserves. You know, winning a design competition always helps. You know, it's really exciting to go out for a job and it's it hurts. It's, you know, painful to put in the extra hours to do that work and to, you know, there's always the nagging self-doubt that, oh, we're not going to get this. They're not going to choose us. But when you get that call or you get that email and it's incredible and exhilarating experience. Are there specific qualities or attributes that are necessary to work or thrive in this field? I think stamina is a good one, but I think probably more important would be the ability to listen. Being a good listener in terms of the needs of the client or the requirements of the law and the codes that it, that govern it, and to be receptive to all the different personalities and energies that go into building a building. There are a lot of people involved and you have to be kind of the glue that makes it all stick. Do you generally like the people you work with in terms of the type of person that is attracted to this field? Yes, I think the collegial atmosphere in an architecture office really does attract similar people. And I think the different types of offices that I've worked in attract different types of people. You know, so again, the hospital one, you might have people that are sort of maybe not as interested in the creative aspects of architecture, 
well, the, the one where we're doing more design solutions, you get the crazy kids who are willing to stay up all night to get the drawing just right, you know, or to build a, an incredibly meticulous model that just is breathtaking when you're done. I think there are passions that drive each to their kind of their own level or to their own aspect of the profession. Tell us about any major obstacles that you've had to overcome. Major obstacle in working in the profession is that it's a relatively low paid job. Starting off in New York City at $28,000 with a master's degree and school debt is a hard way to start your career. And it took a long time for Juhi and I to pay off our student loans. And it, it still is kind of a challenging way to make a living, but it's a fun way to work. And if you're passionate about it, then it kind of balances itself out. I yes. <laughs> Passion certainly has its value. Are there any aspects of it that you'd like to change, if you could? Yeah, I'd love to get a bigger paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> So what's your favorite aspect of the work that you do? I think making a difference in people's lives is my favorite aspect of it. I think when we find novel solutions or kind of universal solutions to the challenges that individuals face or that we collectively face in humanity, especially looking at the challenge of climate change and social injustice, I mean, there are Architecture can solve a lot of things if we go at it the right way. It's also the root cause of a lot of our problems, you know. So to address climate change in a lot of ways is an effort at reversing a lot of the damage that the built environment has already done over the past 200 years. Tell me more about that. What, what do you mean? So in the United States, buildings consume close to 50% of our energy, that's just maintaining them. But also there's a lot of energy embodied in them. And so when we make choices as architects in how to build or how efficient a building will be or inefficient a building will be, it has a huge impact on the amount of carbon that is being released into our atmosphere. If we build buildings that use processes that are highly intensive in carbon, like concrete or steel, we're adding to global warming. If we make choices like using synthetics like plastics and foam, it's highly toxic, but it's also carbon intensive. So a lot of carbon is being released into the atmosphere, carbon dioxide. And so we're contributing to global warming when we do that. But if we choose to use materials that have very low embodied energy, so wood, for example, cellulose or hemp fibers like that, that are natural products and that uh, use very little energy to extract and to use. And then they can actually have a negative carbon impact. They're actually sequestering carbon and reduce uh, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So those are choices that we can make that directly impact the, the built environment. And so if we can make buildings that first start off with low embodied carbon, but then also over the years use less to heat and to cool and to maintain, then we're making choices that are much more sustainable for humanity in the future. And this is a primary focus at, at your firm? Yes, it is. Tell us about that. So our firm is a partnership between my wife, Juhi, who is also an architect and is also a practitioner in Passive House, which is the 
energy efficiency standard that we follow for building. So we use computers to model the energy performance of buildings, and we design the heating and the cooling to essentially be balanced out by the the sun that comes through the windows, the heat given off by people and our computers, so that we require very little energy to heat the buildings and also use natural shading and other strategies and natural cooling strategies to help keep buildings cool as well. So our buildings use maybe 70% less or even 90% less energy to heat or to cool before we even add photovoltaics or solar panels to the equation. So we're able to drive down the energy used in our buildings drastically choosing natural materials or reclaimed materials so that we have the least amount of carbon impact in our choices and then use very little to keep them comfortable. But they're also extremely comfortable places to be in. So you have you know better humidity, you don't have any mold issues, so the buildings last longer and it's healthier for the inhabitants as well. So these techniques are applied to new construction, right? Um, but also retrofits of existing buildings too. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, let's take the new constructions, is it more expensive to build this way or is it comparable or are you looking at the benefits in the long term? It's more of a long-term benefits look. You know, yes, it is more expensive to build this way because the fact is we're building a higher quality building. And so I encourage people to look at the trade-offs instead of building a larger building, building an appropriately sized building for their needs. So it can be the same cost, but maybe they just don't have the extra, you know, bedroom or theater space or whatever it is. But, you know, the fact is that the way buildings are conventionally built now, they're kind of built as skinny and as inefficient as they legally can. So that's why they're relatively cheap compared to a higher quality building. They're basically code is a law. And if you build something to code, that just means that you're barely legal. So if you don't build a building to code, you're basically breaking the law. So. What does that mean, skinny? Well, skinny. Good question. Why did I use that word? Most of the the buildings that we build have kind of thicker walls because insulation takes up space. And so a lot of the, the buildings, you know, if you look back at the 1970s or 1980s, they had, you know, skinny little two by four walls that don't have a lot of insulation in them and have a lot of problems related to that. So how do these methods, these processes, how do they apply to older buildings? Our studio is an older building. It's a it's a blacksmith shop from about 1840, and we retrofitted that as a passive house. And so we've added insulation to the exterior of the building. So we've kind of puffed it up. So it's like we have this skinny frame of the old building and then built out the equivalent of a down jacket on the outside of it. So it's a fat building. <laughs> <laughs> chunky. It's a chunky building. <laughs> so we covered your your favorite aspect of your career, I think, mm-hmm. which is what we just talked about, making a difference and, and having an impact. What are your proudest moments and biggest disappointments? One of the proudest moments is just seeing something get started. You know, we spend so much time drawing and hoping something's going to happen. And sometimes they don't, you know, sometimes the budget doesn't work out or for whatever reason, the client decides to move on, or they don't get permission to build the way that we wanted to. But then when we see the shovel go in the ground and 
the concrete starting to be formed and start to see the building take shape. It's an incredible feeling. There are so many times that I live in a building in my head that when I walk through the space, I'm surprised that the stairs aren't in yet because I've walked up the stairs in my head. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've lived in those spaces before they actually become real. And to actually see them become three-dimensional and, and real, it's an incredible feeling. Um, and of course, the inverse that, of that, the biggest disappointments are to see, you know, really amazing things not come together and, you know, to not have projects come to fruition. That's d- disappointing. To have put a lot of time and effort into the making of those plans and then for it not to come together. Yes. Well, it's more than just the time and effort. It's knowing that we had a really good solution, that it was something that was good and and to have that just kind of evaporate is uh, is a really big disappointment. Knowing what you know now, is there anything that you'd do differently? I think I would still be an architect, but I probably would have gone to business school as well because nobody teaches you how to run an architecture office in an architecture school. I mean, yes, there could be business classes or you could take them outside of your department, but knowing that running an architecture office is running a business is a really important realization that you don't know exists until it's your turn to hang a sign on on the wall and hope somebody calls you on the phone and hires you. It's a scary proposition. And I'm sure there's a learning curve also with starting your own firm in terms of what you know now you didn't know when you started your firm Yes, in terms of building those skills. Yes, it's uh, learning... How to run an architecture firm is a completely separate issue from learning how to do architecture. I mean, certainly everybody, you know, a musician has to learn how to bill or get contracts as well. They're just two different minds that need to, you know, need to overlap and come together or else you can't exist that way. And just you're out of business. Would you recommend it to people suited to it? Yes, I definitely can kind of spot the future architect out there. You know, I absolutely will encourage people to do it, but I'm glad to mentor them in the way that I wasn't mentored so that hopefully they can discover their own mistakes, but not have to retrace mine, you know. Go out and make different mistakes, not the ones that you made. Yeah, they can learn from my mistakes. And certainly that I've got more mistakes, you know, in my future But if I can help others not have to learn the hard way, that would be great. What advice would you give to someone considering a similar path? I would definitely encourage an architecture student or someone considering architecture to travel a lot. Traveling is probably the best inspiration any architect can have, anyone can have. But to see different ways that people live and different solutions and just to have a lot of different sources of inspiration is incredibly important. Did you do a lot of traveling in the midst of getting your, your degrees and your certifications? Yeah, yes, I have. Yeah. In fact, when I w- was studying architecture, I traveled to Germany. I lived in Germany for a year. I did an exchange program there. From there, I traveled to Prague and to Paris and all over Italy. Recently, Juhi and I came back from a trip to Scotland And that was inspirational, you know, much later in our career. I've been to Mexico and Colombia and Japan and Korea 
And all of these places have taught me new things and universals as well, you know, about just common humanity. What have you always wanted to do or achieve that you haven't yet? I have always wanted to build my own house, and that's something we have to do soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, it's something that we're very, very passionate about. And while we live in a terrific older house, but to really just get it right. I mean, we, I just visited our first house that we've designed, and that's all new. And we did a really good job, and it was just so great to walk through that space again and to be with the, the people who now own it and to hear their enthusiasm for it. It's really rewarding. And to offer our children the opportunity to be in a space that we've designed with them in mind and with our lives together in mind is something that we really want to do. Would you say that's a dream project? Yes, that's my dream project for now. And then we'll <laughs> have you know, off to the next dream after that one's fulfilled. Because there's always one after, right? Exactly. Sure. It's like, how many kayaks do you need? Just one more. <laughs> so is, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you feel would be really important for a student curious about architecture as a field to hear? I think there are a couple other things that are really important. I think it's important to have practical experience. You know, architecture student, a future architecture student should consider working in the construction field. And it's not just for male students. Women should be working in construction and there should be more diversity in the construction industry anyway. But to have the opportunity to physically do the work, to understand the challenges and how to build something, I think really informs the process of designing it. And to learn from that materiality of construction will inform the design process as well. But I would also add volunteerism is really important. And getting out and working with other people or working in the environment so that those values are cultured too. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, James. My pleasure. This has been great. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.